Okay, thank you for joining us. It's so great to have you guys all here. Open up your Bibles to Mark 9, 2 through 10. Mark chapter 9, 2 through 10. And if you're here in person, the passage will be right behind me. If you're joining us online, it'll be on your screen at home. But Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 10. This is God's word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Let's pray. Father, we give you all the glory, and we thank you so much, God, for that beautiful time of worship. And now, Lord, we continue in worship. Just because the singing stopped does not mean we stop worshiping. But Lord, help us now to worship as we hear your word, that we would lay our lives down before you as we respond to the truths of your scripture. So Lord God, open the word to us. Give us hearts full of faith to receive. Be with everyone who is here. Be with everyone joining us online. We love you. We want to hear from you today. We want to meet with you. Lord, more than anyone I know I need, your truth, and I need to meet with you today as well. So Lord God, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, today we're gonna be continuing our series, Disciple, which is also the theme for this year, just one word, Disciple. And we are also finishing the message that we began last week, which was on the transfiguration of Jesus in Mark chapter nine. And this is the passage that we just read. So this amazing, miraculous story of Jesus going high up a mountain with his disciples and then transforming and revealing the glory that he had from eternity past. Now, many people, when they hear about the story of the transfiguration, they don't really think about discipleship. They don't connect that story to discipleship. But it should, because it is about discipleship. Because the transfiguration of Jesus is directly connected to Jesus' description of discipleship six days earlier. So I kind of unpacked that last week, but I want to go over it again. But six days earlier, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, are you anyone? Yes, all of us. If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. That was the call to discipleship. That is the heart of discipleship. And that was a very harsh saying that confused and discouraged the disciples. He actually said it to more than the disciples. He said it to the entire crowd in front of him. But in particular, Jesus' 12 disciples were confused by that. They were very discouraged by that. But why? Well, it was confusing and discouraging because whenever God's spiritual truth collides with our naturalistic, humanistic mindset, then this is what happens. You get confused. You get discouraged. And this is the mindset that everyone had who were following Jesus up till that point. Because they saw Jesus as just a way of achieving and receiving the things that the flesh already wanted. Okay, that's why, by and large, the crowd was following him. That's why, by and large, even the disciples were following him. They saw Jesus as just another way, maybe the last and greatest way, to just get things they already wanted in the flesh. You know, this morning I was looking at my Bible app and I read Philippians 4.13 every day. They just have this little verse they highlight. But it said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Some of you guys have that hanging in your bathroom. Some of you guys have that written on a t-shirt. It's a beautiful verse. And when Paul penned that verse, he was talking about rejoicing in his trials, being content in all circumstances, right? Whether you have much or little, I can do all things through Christ. But when I read that verse this morning, I immediately thought of all the people over the years who have mentioned that verse to me. And they used it to talk about things that their flesh already wanted. 
So whether they had Christ or didn't have Christ, these were things that they already wanted. And so they would use that verse as, I can do this, right? I can get this through Christ. I can do all things. So we're talking about things like getting a higher paycheck at work, getting into that prestigious school, winning that big sports game, finally getting that girl or that guy to like you and then marry you, whatever it is, right? But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to discourage you from praying for those things. Yes, we should pray about these things if they are genuine needs. And God very well could give you those things. But you don't need a new heart to desire them. That's the point. Non-believers go after all these things without Philippians 4.13. Because these are things that the flesh already wants. And people who see Jesus in a naturalistic, humanistic way will see him as just the latest and greatest way to get those things. He's just another way to get the things that I've already, always wanted, long before I met Christ. And this mindset is rampant in the church today. In fact, it fuels all kinds of activity in the church, like Bible reading, praying, serving, even fasting. All these things are done so Jesus will give you the things your flesh already wants. And so when you turn back to Mark's gospel, Peter exemplified this. I think Peter's highlighted because he was kind of the leader, the spokesman for all the disciples. But you see this mindset in Peter because in Mark chapter 8, Peter was moved by the Holy Spirit to make this glorious declaration, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? And that was Peter's answer. He was moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay, that was glorious. And then shortly after, Jesus predicted that he was going to now go to Jerusalem. Okay, the, the ministry was shifting gears now. He was headed to Jerusalem where he would be rejected, suffer many things, and then be killed. But then raised back to life. And in that moment, Peter was moved by Satan, and then he rebuked Jesus. Don't say that. Me and never be. And so that's spiritual whiplash. I mean, think about Peter being moved by the Spirit, and then just minutes later, maybe hours, but a short time later, he was moved by Satan to rebuke Jesus. So how can that happen? Well, it's because Peter had this naturalistic, humanistic mindset. And if anyone has that kind of a mindset, then that is an open door for the enemy to come and just move us, to influence us in any which way. So this was the situation before the transfiguration. And so seeing all of this, Jesus had to make the heart of discipleship clear to everyone. If you just want to be my follower, we're just talking about Christianity 101, right? I mentioned that. If you just want to be a vanilla bread and butter Christian, just a beginner in the Christian life, then you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, which symbolized death. You must die to the things that you want and hope, and dream, and desire in your life, and then follow me. And if you don't, you're not my follower. And so this is what Jesus declared. And in that moment, God's spiritual truth collided with everyone's naturalistic mindset. And so what was the result? Confusion, discouragement. What? What is all this? And so they were utterly confused and discouraged by Jesus' prediction that he would suffer many things in Jerusalem and then be killed. They were confused and discouraged by Jesus' call to deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and then follow him. And so none of this made sense to them. None of this was a part of the vision they had for Jesus or even their own lives. This isn't our vision, Jesus. This doesn't fit what we're thinking. And all of us at some point will go through this. This is actually necessary. But we will also be confused and discouraged at a certain point in our lives because we all have naturalistic thinking. We all do. Even as you're sitting here at church, you're thinking, and maybe you might even be hearing this message in a very naturalistic, humanistic way. Okay, hmm, what are you going to say to me, Roy, today so that I can use this and go and get things that I want? Right? What are you going to tell me so that I can get a better life for myself and go after the things that I want? And if you don't tell me good things, then I probably won't be back. And so a lot of people come to church even with that mindset. And if we have that mindset and God's truth begins to go forth, they're going to collide. 
And then we leave confused and discouraged. So for example, some of you, for some of us, I should say, we want God to bless us. Amen? We want certain things in our lives, and we want God to take away certain things in our lives, like trials. In fact, isn't this why some of us trust him? Isn't this why you pray to him? Isn't this why we come to church? So you just want God to give you the things you want, and you just want him to take away the things you don't want, but God has very different expectations. Because in his word, he says, far more than those things, and those things he will give in his time, but far more than that, he wants something else. What is it? He wants you to mature and grow in your faith and become like his son, Jesus Christ. So far more than anything we desire in our lives, that is the greatest blessing he wants. That is far greater than anything else we could want in our lives. And because God knows that, in order to bring that greater blessing, he will even do the opposite of what we expect. He will take away the things we want. He will even bring the trials into our lives that we don't want. And so he'll do the opposite. And in that moment, we're confused. Why? Right? What is going on? I believe in you. And God's like, yes, you do. And so now I'm bringing the greatest blessing into your life. You need to mature. You need to grow in your faith. You need to become like my son, Jesus Christ. And yet, even knowing that, we are confused and we are discouraged. So this is what happens every time spiritual truth collides with our humanistic, naturalistic mindset. And so if this is you today, if you're sitting here, and this is basically you, as you're sitting here, you're like, you know what? It hasn't been too great in my life. I've had a lot of discouragement lately. I don't know what God is doing. Then I want you to be encouraged. Amen? Be encouraged because Jesus, the good shepherd, knows your heart. He knows what's in your heart. He knows the confusion and discouragement. He knows that his truth has been colliding up against your naturalistic mindset. And knowing that, rather than lay more demands on you, Jesus will do something else. He will take you up a high mountain. And on that mountaintop, he will impart unimaginable gifts to you. And so now we finally come to the story of the transfiguration six days later. But this is exactly what Jesus did to his disciples. But Jesus took his confused and discouraged disciples up a tall mountain because he wanted to impart unimaginable gifts to them. Because again, he's the good shepherd. He knew what was in their hearts. And so he wanted to impart these unimaginable gifts. And so when you look at the transfiguration, yes, it's a very rich story. There's layers of symbolism and meaning. But in a very practical sense, Jesus was transfigured for his disciples. Jesus took them up this high mountain and had this glorious transfiguration for them to encourage them and bless them. In fact, when you read the text, when you read what Mark says, that's exactly what we see. It says Jesus was transfigured before them. There appeared to them, Moses and Elijah, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And then God's voice from heaven spoke to them, right? It was all for them. So Jesus did all this for them. So Jesus' transfiguration was for them. And in this single moment, there were multiple gifts that Jesus wanted to impart to his disciples. See, brothers and sisters, as we're going to be talking about discipleship this entire year, please, please do not miss this. Why is this so vital? Why is discipleship to him the essential to the Christian life? Well, it's not only because that is the Christian life. That's the evidence you're actually saved. But even more than that, the reason why is because disciples are the ones who truly experience and enjoy the gifts of Christ, the richness of Christ and everything he has. See, it's not just the church attender or the person who just shows up here every now and then, even the person who just cracks open the Bible every now and then, but it's the person who has committed themselves to follow Christ. Yes, I will follow you. I will deny myself, take up my cross daily and follow you. That's the person who experiences and receives all these gifts. And these gifts are priceless. They are beyond description. They're infinitely valuable. I can't even describe, I can't even put words to them, how infinitely amazing they are. But Jesus has them for us. Why? To bless us, strengthen us, and prepare us for the road ahead. Again, this is why Jesus took his disciples up this high mountain to bestow and impart these gifts to them. So these gifts are also available to you if you will follow him 
Okay, this is the real stuff. This is where you take the ticket to Disneyland and actually turn it in and walk in. You don't just hang around in the front or just kick it in the parking lot. You actually go in. You actually experience the fullness of the kingdom of God. He has these gifts for you. So what are we talking about? Enduring faith, Shekinah glory, the eternal gospel, and divine authority. Last week, we already saw the first two, God's gift of enduring faith, which is more precious than gold, the Bible says. And God's Shekinah glory, which is his very own presence in your life. So we already talked about that. And today, we're going to see the last two, the eternal gospel and divine authority. We're really going to just look at the eternal gospel. We'll look at the authority piece a little later. But he has gifts for us. So the first one that I want to look at today is the eternal gospel. This is truly an indescribable gift. But through the transfiguration, Jesus was dramatically revealing and imparting the gospel to his disciples. And by the way, anybody who has this kind of humanistic way of thinking, the gospel is the only cure. The gospel is what's going to take a very carnal, flesh-driven person. Even if you're a Christian, you could be driven by your flesh. And your flesh is just that old part of you that doesn't know God, doesn't care about God, is untouched by God. But we can be driven by that. And the gospel is the only thing that can cure you of your flesh. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So the transfiguration was Jesus revealing and imparting the gospel to these very naturally-minded disciples. You know, one Bible scholar called the transfiguration the gospel in microcosm. I I really like that. It was a journal article. I really read it. Uh, It was very easy to read. It was very interesting. But this Bible scholar said, in a very real sense, it presents, it meaning the transfiguration, presents the gospel in microcosm. It points back to the baptism and looks forward to the cross, resurrection, ascension, and perusia. In other words, Jesus' second coming. So it is one of those turning points which have a great interest for New Testament theology and particularly for an understanding of the kingdom of God. It looks back to the Old Testament and shows how Christ fulfills it and it anticipates the great redemptive acts which bring the gospel story to its climax and fulfillment. Okay, that's a mouthful. That's quite a statement. But in other words, this person is saying when you look at the transfiguration, it is rich with the gospel. It is revealing the fullness of the gospel. And he's saying all of these gospel events in Jesus' life are revealed in the transfiguration and they were being given to the disciples to change their mindset. But how? Well, the transfiguration is organically connected to all these gospel events in Jesus' life. So let me briefly mention. But first, Jesus' baptism. The transfiguration is connected to that. Why? Because the baptism is the only other time when God the Father spoke audibly from heaven, and he said almost the exact same thing. At Jesus' baptism, God the Father said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, what did God the Father say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So they're connected. They're very similar. And so both of these events mark Jesus as the one God has sent to save us. That's what that voice is declaring. He is the one. Listen to him. There's only one name by which we are saved, Jesus. God the Father, the one true God, never said that about any other religious figure. Muhammad, Buddha, Joseph Smith, Mary Baker Eddy, nobody, only Jesus. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. He's the one. So the transfiguration makes that clear. The transfiguration is also organically connected to Jesus' death on the cross. Why is that? It was because the whole reason they went up the mountain and Jesus got transfigured, the whole reason was because the disciples didn't understand the cross. Okay, that was the context. So they were seeing Jesus and following him in a very humanistic way, and because of that, they got discouraged and confused, right? I just said that. So after Jesus was transfigured and his glory was revealed, God the Father said what? Listen to him. This is my son, nobody else. He's the one who came to save you. Listen to him. In other words, stop seeing Jesus in a humanistic, natural way. Listen to him. Listen to him when he's told you that he's going to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed, and then raised back to life. Listen to him because the cross is a part of my plan for your salvation. That's what God the Father was saying. Listen to him. Quit filtering what Jesus is saying and the word of God through your own naturalistic way. Stop doing that. But see these things in a spiritual way. 
Listen to him. So the transfiguration was connected to the cross. And then finally, the transfiguration is organically connected to Jesus' resurrection and second coming. These are all the different events in the gospel, right? Why is it connected to his resurrection and second coming? Well, it's because Jesus' life didn't end with the cross. As horrific as it is, the cross was only a doorway to what? Glory. To glory. Right? So Jesus came, yes, to die, but not just die, to be raised back to life and to live in glory and then to shine that glory upon our lives, to reveal that life, that resurrection life to us, to give us that glory and that life. And so Jesus' glory that was going to be revealed at his resurrection and second coming, that was foreshadowed at the transfiguration. Do you see that? That's why he was shining. So God the Father revealed that glory to the disciples. Why? To show them, you know what? Yeah, you're really bummed out right now and you're confused and discouraged by the cross, but don't you know that's not the end? That's just a doorway. Here's the end, glory. It's glory. So the transfiguration is connected to all these gospel events. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness and salvation of sinners like you and me. The transfiguration is key to revealing all of that. I know oftentimes we don't see all that, but it's all there. So this is what God the Father wanted to reveal to the disciples. But so what, right? What gospel realities were exactly being given to the disciples. So what if they saw that? Okay, it's connected to his baptism, the cross, his resurrection, okay. But what does that mean to me, right? The disciples might have wondered. What was being imparted to them exactly? Well, I believe that through this single event, God was imparting to the disciples two gospel realities at the same time. These are gospel realities that must happen to you. But God was first exposing the false gods in their hearts the little g, the false gods in their hearts. And at the very same time, he was revealing Jesus as the only one who can deliver them and complete them. He is the only one true God who can deliver them and complete them. So those were the gospel realities that was being given to the disciples. So what do I mean by that? Well, as we know, the disciples were discouraged, right? It was a hard word earlier, six days before. Okay, you're going to follow me? Okay, well, then you're going to have to die because that's where I'm headed. I'm going to go and die in Jerusalem. So you follow me. You take up your cross too and follow me. And they're like, what? Right? I want to sit at your right hand, your left hand. When you come in glory and you reign over Israel, I want to be a part of your cabinet. Right? You're going to be king, right? I want to be a part of your cabinet. And God's like, Jesus is like, that's not where I'm headed. I'm headed to a cross, not a throne. And so they were very discouraged by that. And the reason is because although they were following Jesus in their hearts, they were worshiping something else. So Jesus, again, was just a means to get other things. So their hearts were brimming with false hopes, false securities, false values, false goals, false saviors, and false gods. And when God's spiritual truth collided with all of that, they were confused, they were discouraged. By the way, this is oftentimes why people come to church and they don't come back. It's because they're confused. What, what is all this? Right? Why, why are you talking to me about dying and believing in this weird person, Jesus? And it doesn't make sense to all these false gods that are brimming, brimming in their hearts. And so this was the disciples. And so, for example, okay, one false hope and value and God they had was their desire for their own glory. And so we know this from other parts of the gospel, but they were arguing Who's the greatest? Right after Jesus predicted that he was going to die, they were just arguing with each other who's the greatest as they were going to Jerusalem. At one point, James and John even came with their mom. Okay, why did the mom get involved, right? Talk about, talk about a tiger mom, but this is like the ultimate tiger mom bringing her two boys and saying, Jesus, my two boys have a request. It was really weird. Why, why was the mom there? And then James and John said, yes, we want to sit at your right hand and your left hand. You're going to be king. You make us number one and number two. And so we know this was in their mind and in their hearts. They had these grandiose ideas about their own glory. This was their hope. This is what they worshipped. And so this, by the way, is why they were so discouraged when Jesus told them, I'm not going to a throne. I'm going to a cross. 
and you must also take up your cross and follow me. This directly hit them where it hurt. Their desire for glory and influence and power. But then the transfiguration in a single moment did what? It exposed it. It completely laid that bare. It revealed Jesus as the one who delivers us from that and completes us. Right? Jesus is the one who will deliver us from these false hopes and false desires. So in that moment for the disciples, it laid bare this pathetic desire they had for their own glory. So what do I mean? Well, when they saw Jesus transfigured before them in true glory, they began to see their own desire for their own glory for what it is. Right? I, mean, I mean, this is sad. It's pathetic. You know what it would kind of be like is, is somebody who is striving and striving to get noticed at work, and they really want influence and respect. They really want to build themselves up and be somebody. Maybe some of you guys feel that way. And so this is what they live for, and then one day they're invited to a missions overseas, and they're called to minister to some orphans. And on that mission trip, God lets you experience true influence and true respect. And so through these orphans, you get a taste of genuine gratitude. See, they show all this love and gratitude towards you for serving them. And in that moment, you don't become more puffed up, but what happens? You don't go, yeah, look at me, right? I am finally somebody. Look at how much these orphans love me. That's not what you're going to think or whoever. But rather, in that moment when God reveals his true glory to you, what will happen? You're going to see your false glory. You're going to see your desires for what they are, that they are pathetic in light of the true thing. So you will be humbled, right? So this is what happens when you're standing in front of the glory of Christ. Your heart gets laid bare, and then the things that you're going after is revealed. But you're not only humble, but at the same time, you are encouraged because you would realize the thing I've been striving for, this influence and respect to be somebody God is offering me the true form of that through his son. Right? The real thing that I want, God is offering right here by repentance and faith in his son, Jesus Christ. So what happens in that moment as you're standing in front of Christ, the glory of Christ? And again, the gospel is only the only place you see that glory. The spell the idol has on your heart is finally broken. That is the only way you're going to turn away from your false God and then turn towards the true God. Until then, there is no hope. Every single day, you will serve as a slave to that false god. See, these disciples, they had zero hope of being broken free of their desire for their own glory, for their own influence. They had zero hope to be set free. So Jesus knew that and took them high up a mountain and revealed his own glory. And so Jesus revealed the false god in their heart and at the very same time revealed himself to be the true God who truly delivers and completes them. And so this is what the transfiguration did. And the transfiguration really drove home this point. Because when Jesus was transfigured, two other people appeared. Every account of the transfiguration mentions them, but it was Moses and Elijah. So we really see this, how Jesus delivers and also completes utterly. But it happens through Moses and Elijah. But Moses and Elijah, they had very prominent roles in the Old Testament. But Moses was who? He was the deliverer of Israel and the lawgiver, right? And Elijah was who? He was the premier prophet of God who stood against idolatry during Israel's darkest days. And interestingly, both of them also met God on a high mountain and saw God's glory. So they both had a very similar experience as the disciples. They only saw a portion of God's glory. They couldn't see the whole thing, lest they die. But they had a very similar experience. So what's the meaning of them showing up here and now at Jesus' transfiguration? Why those two? Well, Bible scholars have different ideas, but I think the one that makes the most sense is Moses and Elijah appeared as forerunners of Jesus. Forerunners. What I mean is they both performed great works that were unfinished that Jesus would now finish. See, Jesus is the great deliverer and the great completer. Right? He completes the things that aren't finished. And so we see this clearly with Moses and Elijah. So Jesus appeared to finish the works that they couldn't finish. So for example, Moses delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, right? But he couldn't deliver them from slavery to sin. 
Moses led God's people to the edge of the promised land, but he couldn't lead them in because of his own sin. Elijah fought valiantly against the prophets of Baal, and he turned many people back to God, but then when his life got threatened, he ran. And so he couldn't complete his work. And because of that, the Israelites eventually went back to Baal worship. And then God judged them, and they were exiled. So both of them had this glorious ministry, and yet they couldn't finish. Both of them also saw God's Shekinah glory on a high mountain, but they only saw a fraction of it. And so it was incomplete. The Bible even says because God shined his glory onto Moses, Moses' face shined back. He had a glowing face, but it was a fading glory, so he had to cover it up. See, it was an incomplete reflection of glory. So clearly, Moses and Elijah, they're important figures. They did great works for God in redemptive history, and yet their work was incomplete. And interestingly, the close of the Old Testament, our Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament is kind of arranged differently, but in our Old Testament, it ends with this kind of acknowledgement that Moses and Elijah had incomplete ministry and so we're waiting for them. But it's very fascinating. But at the very, very end of our Old Testament, the last few verses before the Old Testament ends, you know who are mentioned? Moses and Elijah. But in Malachi 4, 4 through 6, Malachi said, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then the Old Testament ends. That's how it ends. And so even our Old Testament seems to have this acknowledgement that Moses and Elijah had glorious ministries, but they're somehow incomplete. And so we're looking for them to come back or at least a prophet like them to come and complete their work. That's how the Old Testament ends. And so now, when you flip a few pages forward, and now you're in the New Testament, what do we see? God is faithful. God finally sends the prophet that we've been waiting for, the true prophet, the greater prophet, the Moses and Elijah, who would complete their redemptive work. The work that they couldn't complete, now this greater prophet will complete, and it is his son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus brought the true deliverance from our true slavery to sin. Okay, Moses couldn't do that, but Jesus did. Jesus brought us all the way into the true promised land, God's kingdom. Moses only brought the Israelites to the edge of the promised land. Jesus took them all the way in because he didn't have any sin. He fought and conquered idolatry and false worship once and for all. And he would do that by laying down his life. He didn't run for his life. He laid down his life. And so he actually conquered it once and for all. And so all of this was done through Jesus, and it would be done through his death. And so Luke's gospel actually points this out as well. The transfiguration is so rich. I want you guys to understand and see all these things. But Luke's gospel tells us that Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus. So these two great prophets who had these great ministries, incomplete, but great ministries, they were talking with Jesus. And what were they talking about? Jesus' departure. And that word in the Greek is very interesting. I don't know why they didn't just translate it the way it is, but that word is really exodus. It's exodus. So they were talking with Jesus about his exodus. So what does that mean? Very interesting choice of words. Well, I think the implication there could be through Jesus' departure, in other words, death, he would bring a great exodus, a greater exodus not just from slavery to stuff or people, but sin and slavery to the enemy and his kingdom. But he would bring a much greater exodus. And so there's a lot going on here. I could go deeper a little bit further, but, but you see the point, right? There's layer upon layer here of gospel truth woven into the transfiguration. So what does all of this mean? Well, here's the point. The gospel reveals the idolatry in our hearts the very thing that discourages us and confuses us when we come to church and hear the word of God, we don't, it doesn't make sense to us. Why? Because we are just gripped by these things and we're thinking in a naturalistic way. And when God's truth comes and confronts it, it discourages, it confuses. And yet the gospel, once it begins to shine in your heart, it reveals that idolatry 
And then not only that, it points us to Jesus who can truly deliver us and complete us. And so this is God's gift, brothers and sisters. This is a gift that is beyond measure. This is what we all need. And so have you received this gift? Have you truly heard the gospel? Not just as a ticket to heaven, but something that you need in order to live this Christian life. Right? It's not something that only saves me, but it shapes me. By no effort of my own that I am righteous, God sees me as perfect. How many of you guys sinned this past week? How many of you guys sinned in such a profound way that you're discouraged? Maybe you didn't even want to come to church this week. Maybe some of us. Well, don't you know that the gospel says, yes, you need to repent of that, lest you be condemned, but I don't condemn you. Why? Because Jesus already took it. Right? That's the gospel. God says, you know what? Yes, you did that, and I want you to stop. But when I see you, I see perfect righteousness. See, that's the gospel. See, when you come to church, oh, gosh, I don't know how I can face you. And the gospel says, but you can come boldly to the throne of grace with no shame. Why? Because Jesus' righteousness covers you. See, that's the gospel. See, have you heard that? Have you received that and buried it deep in your heart? Have you let it do its transforming work? Because the moment you come before that glorious gospel and there's nothing like it in the world, everything else is you're going to have to try harder, do better, and perform and reach certain standards. This is the only thing in the world that says, no, somebody else did it for you. By his grace, by his mercy. See, once you hear that, then your idols are laid bare. See, that's the glorious light that lays bare your idols. All these false gods and false hopes and false desires. So have you done that? Have you let the gospel do that? You know, there's a Puritan named David Clarkson. He wrote a book called Soul Idolatry Excludes Men and Women from Heaven. That title alone is a sermon, right? Idolatry excludes men and women from heaven. If you die with idolatry in your heart, never repented of, never believed in the gospel, you will not go to heaven. So he wrote a whole book on this. It's a very in-depth look at idolatry. And in this book, he mentions a dozen or more ways that a soul worships different things. So let me just mention them briefly. But esteem, value, the thing we value most, we make our God. So what do you value in your life? Mindfulness, the thing you think about most throughout the day, the thing you pay attention to the most is your God. Intention, aim, the thing we're aiming at the most, going after the most, we make our God. Resolution, the thing we are resolved to get the most, no matter what, I must have this, you make your God. Love, the thing you love the most, you worship as your God. Trust, the thing you trust the most, you make your God. Fear, the thing you fear the most, This includes fear of losing. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen if I lose this? I can't live. You make your God. Hope, the thing you hope in the most, you worship as God. Desire, the thing you desire the most, you worship as God. Delight, the thing you delight in and rejoice in the most, you worship as God. Zeal, the thing that you get excited about and passionate about the most, you worship as God. And then finally, gratitude, the thing that you are so thankful for, more thankful for than anything else you worship as God. So do you see how easily our hearts can fall into heart idolatry? And so these things can be anything, right? We can worship in these ways anything pretty much. And so you know, we've talked about this before, but it could be your children, your spouse, your career, your intelligence, your ideology, your theology, your reputation, your righteousness, your ministry, your degree, your health, your money, your physical body, the way you look, your car, your pet. Right? It could be anything, your clothes. Any of these things fill our hearts and they blind us to the glory of Christ. And so the glory of Christ in the gospel, who he is and what he's done is the only thing that can break the spell. It reveals, it lays bare your heart. All these things, like, gosh, really? In light of who Jesus is and what he's given to me? So, for example, if you're longing for love, I I need love from people around me, right? I need their respect. I need to find that boyfriend or that girlfriend or that perfect spouse to love me. And then suddenly you see the love of Christ, you just see how pathetic that is. Your heart is laid bare. But not only that, the gospel also reveals Jesus as the only one who truly delivers you and completes you for that longing 
He completes your deepest longings. So this is God's mercy. This is his gift to you. And brothers and sisters, it really is a gift because one way or another, those things will get revealed. See, this is God's mercy upon the disciples because they had this passion for their own glory. They wanted to be powerful and influential. If Jesus just let them go, one day it would, it would have gone revealed. And that's how idolatry is. Whether you get it revealed by God or you just crash and burn and it gets revealed, it's going to get revealed. You know, recently I remember hearing an update on a story that broke like years ago. But do you guys remember the story of these parents who were um, basically paying tons of money to get their kids into uh, good schools? Um, some of the schools, I mean, I, I don't consider them like that great, but, but they were paying all this money for them to get into these different colleges. And they were kind of like rigging the system and paying extra money to the administrative you know, people, the, the admission people. And so it all came down, they got caught, and some of them even went to prison. And so there was an updated story recently of how some of these people now finally came out of prison after about three, four years. And you know what the saddest thing is? Is they got caught, right? So that was an idolatry in their hearts. They valued more than anything else their children and their children's success. Maybe they even did it out of love, but it was an idol in their hearts. And so it got revealed. They went to prison. But you know what was so sad? This article basically said some of the kids, they didn't even want to go to those colleges. <laughs> so they were doing it for them, and the kids didn't even want it, right? They didn't even go to the colleges that they got into. And so once their parents got into, went to prison, I mean, they didn't even go to those schools. And so not only did it crash and all of it got revealed, but who they were doing it for, it wasn't even really blessing them. In fact, it was an enormous curse and a burden. So what am I saying? God's saying, don't you know, I want to reveal these things ahead of time. Okay, this is the gift of the gospel. Okay, this is why Jesus took these disciples high up a mountain and transfigured. He was transfigured in order to reveal this to them. And so have you heard this gospel? Have you received it deep in your heart? And so I love how Mark ends his account of the transfiguration, but it ends with these words, Jesus only. I love that. So that's how the transfiguration story ends, Jesus only, and then they came down from the mountain. But it's Jesus only in your life. I love that, right? So even Moses and Elijah, I mean, they had glorious ministries, but it's incomplete. And so you might even have some good things in your life, but they're incomplete, right? Yeah, you know, I got a good thing going. I got this good career. I'm in a pretty good school. I'm advancing. I have a pretty good GPA. You know, I have these beautiful kids, and they're growing healthy and strong. They seem to love Jesus. I mean, you have a good thing going, but is it Jesus only? Is it Jesus only? And so Mark clearly is pointing, everything in this story is pointing, pointing to the gospel that sets us free. It's Jesus only, amen? And so we're going to wrap it up there. I know I, I said there's one more point of the divine authority. The divine authority is not explicitly stated in this passage is only implied, but we're going to look at it more when we look at Jesus giving that authority for them to do ministry. So we're going to look at that later in Mark chapter 6. But the gospel, okay, this is God's glorious gift. So enduring faith, Shekinah glory, and the eternal gospel, okay, these are for us. So let's just come before the Lord right now. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We just come before you right now, Lord, and we just humble ourselves before you. And we ask, oh God, please, Lord, I know in my own heart, and I've been, Lord, walking with you for almost 30 years now, pastoring this church for more than 10. Lord, I teach the word of God, and yet even I know how weak I am, Father. I know how much my heart can be gripped by these things, these false securities and false hopes and false desires, these false saviors that do not save. And even knowing, Lord, the glorious gospel, even knowing these truths. I know how hard it can be, even in my own heart. And so, Lord God, 
I know, Father, we all, we all struggle. And so, Lord God, please, Lord God, like the disciples, Lord, many of us, we are confused. We're discouraged in our walks with you. Truth be told, we don't have a lot of passion or zeal for you. We have a lot of passion and zeal for other things, but not for you. And so, Lord God, have mercy. And like these disciples, take us up that high mountain. Take us up that high mountain, Lord. It can be a literal mountain, but it doesn't have to be a literal mountain. Just a place where we can be with you alone. And our thoughts and our hearts are lifted high, high above our gunk in our lives, all the stuff in our lives. Take us to that high place to be with you. And show us again your glory. Show us again the gospel and who you are and what you've done. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, God. Let's just come before the Lord, and every Sunday what we do is we respond to the word of God. So let's just come before him right now. God wants you to have in your heart this upcoming week with Jesus only. Jesus only. Of course, that doesn't mean we have nothing else in our lives that we, we care for, we, we desire. But what that means is the top spot in our hearts, the highest priority in our lives, Jesus only. Every day you're going to have to fight to make it Jesus only. Only Jesus is going to be in this top spot. this in love but if you are here today and you're hearing this and you just kind of set it aside I mean this is just clearly laid out in scripture but you just kind of set it aside you're playing games with God then God has mercy he has a lot of grace he has long suffering is revealed by God or is revealed through some circumstance or something just crashing and burning in your life. But the thing that we value most, the thing that we worship every day that 
is not God will be revealed. And so my encouragement to you is long before that day comes, come to the Lord. Just come to Him now. And say, Jesus, only, only you. At the very top of my heart, only you. Let Him come and God, we just come before you and we humble ourselves, Lord. Because ultimately, Lord, we know from Philippians 2, at the very end of that passage we read earlier, whether we humble ourselves now or we are humbled by you later, everyone is going to be humbled. And so, Lord God, we want to just humble ourselves now and, so, Lord, and say, Lord, you are God. And these things that our hearts are drawn to, they are not God. They are not God. You are God. These things that promise glory, they do not promise glory. They will be incomplete. Only you have the true glory. Only you can complete what is lacking in us. So Lord God, we want to just humble ourselves and confess the things that are in our hearts. All these false gods, we confess them before you, Lord. Lord, you lay them bare. Lord, before life does it to us, Lord, you lay them bare so that we can repent of them and come to you, Lord. We want to make you alone, God, in our lives. Yes, we can enjoy many things. Yes, we can desire other things and love other things, but Lord, but the top spot, only you, only Jesus. So Lord God, let that be our hearts. Lord Jesus, please have mercy, Lord. Who, who can live up to that? Even in that, Lord, only Jesus, only you can do that in us that kind of heart. So Lord God, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for your transfiguration. Lord, now we are being transfigured. That word metamorpho, that's the same word Paul used in 2 Corinthians 3. We are now being transformed from glory to glory. In other words, we're being transfigured as we look at you in your glory. We are transfigured. So Lord God, we thank you, Lord. Only you can do that. Let's rise for fun.